your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 12, and we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and we return this morning to a section of Scripture that we see judgment is proclaimed on those who are uh, Christ's adversaries, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and uh, you could look at this as a Uh, judgment upon those who are rejecting Christ, even after they've seen everything that he's done. Um, One thing we have to understand clearly from the the beginning before we get into our text this morning is that the Bible clearly states that man is in sin and in need of a Savior. They're in sin, they're separated from God, um, and they're on basically divine target of judgment. That's all men, everywhere. The Bible says all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's taught throughout Scripture. And the fact that man is sinful and is lost and separated from God um, shows us his need of a Savior. But that's not always apparent, I think, when sometimes we compare on a horizontal plane. When we look at our neighbor, we might look at them and say, well, we're not as bad as them. Or they may look at us and say, well, I'm not as bad as them. Or we may look at each other and say, well, at least I don't do this or I don't do that. And somehow our sinfulness seems to get dumbed down to a palatable level. And we really don't think that we're that bad off. Because man, basically, most are religious to some degree. They're moral Some are good people on a human level. Some even say that they believe in God. And they may even do kind acts one to another. Love your neighbors, yourself, those kind of things. But ultimately, ultimately, the Bible clearly teaches that the sinfulness of man is always made very clear, very manifest. And it's kind of the sinfulness of man is at at its apex when it runs into the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're confronted face-to-face with the holiness of Jesus Christ, at that point, there's no way that we can hide our sinfulness before God. No matter what your life is like. You may say, oh, I give to charity, I do this, I do that. It doesn't matter. If you compare yourself right next to Jesus Christ, your sinfulness becomes very, very apparent And the sin issue becomes, someone said, crystallized when they come face to face with Christ. And that's really, when God reveals man's sinfulness, that's really where the word of God leads us. It leads us to the cross. It leads us to Christ. Before we get into Matthew chapter 12, I want you to turn over to a couple verses in John chapter 15. John chapter 15 And I just want to look at a a couple verses here because it kind of explains to us a little bit about our own sinfulness. Um, It helps us to understand Matthew 12 a little better. Here, you know, the Lord is meeting with his disciples in the upper, upper room. And 
obviously the unbelief of the Jewish nation is very evident. They've plotted to kill their Messiah. Um, and this is basically the night of his betrayal, the night before his arrest. We're coming up on that season now. Resurrection Sunday, Good Friday, Passion Week. And only hours before his death, he speaks here in the upper room to his disciples. And he just finished washing their feet. And he gives them all kinds of insights that hopefully they can be held together by the truth when he is gone. It's kind of his last-ditch effort to give them some words to hang on before he's out of the picture, at least physically. And one of the things he promises them here is that there's going to be difficulty. And he clearly says in John 15, look at verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they do not know him who sent me. Verse 22. And this is kind of what I want you to catch out of this text. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now, who's he talking about? He's talking about the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. But now, he says, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. And then look at what verse 24 says. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. You see here, what that tells us is that Christ came to them, not only in word, but in deed, and he performed incredible miracles in their midst. And he did it to show them that he was the Messiah. And what he's saying here is that when you come face to face with Jesus Christ, you may have hidden your sin well enough so nobody else can see. And you may have done it for a long time. But when it comes down to rejecting Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, then the mask is off, the truth is out. And that's where we find ourselves back in Matthew 12. No matter what you appear on the surface. Now these Pharisees looked very religious. They wore robes and all the people looked up to them as teachers of the law. And everybody thought, whoa, these guys are religious people. And what Jesus is going to point out here is that it doesn't matter what's on the outside. It's what matters what's on the inside. That we're vile, wretched sinners. And that eventually leads itself to the rejection of Jesus Christ himself. The Bible says the heart is evil. It's wicked. And when it's confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ, that wickedness just spills over. Either you bow your knee to the Savior or you raise your fist. But you have some reaction you can't just walk away unchanged. And that's where we find ourselves here in Matthew 12. The Pharisees have kind of kept up this hypocrisy, this 
facade of being religious in front of all the people. And everything was fine until Jesus showed up. And as soon as Jesus showed up, he started to call them on certain things. And you know what? They were threatened by Christ because they didn't want to give up their power of being the religious leaders. And they looked at the people and they looked at Christ and they said, you know what? These people are considering this man to be the Messiah. We have to somehow kind of undermine that. We can't allow this to happen or we'll lose our power. And so they began to attack him. And we've seen that up to this point through the Gospel of Matthew. But Jesus is just revealing their true feeling about God. They don't love God at all. They love the power that their position offers them as a Pharisee or as a scribe or a Sadducee, whatever it is here, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, but they don't love God. And that's what Jesus is going to point out. And that's what happens when you are confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're confronted with the gospel of Christ, either you embrace it and you come to the Savior or you turn your back on it and run as far away as you can. There's really no middle ground there. And when you reject the gospel of Christ, you've rejected the truth. Because the truth has been manifested through Christ. So he's pointing out here they don't love God at all. You know, and that's how it is. Even in our modern day society today, you take any of the cults, for example, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, all those people who look so religious on the outside. So moral on the outside. So many of them have such good family values. And they're obedient to the laws as they understand them. But when you get down to the point and you confront them with who Jesus Christ is, all of a sudden it seems as if their hypocrisy is revealed. And well, we don't believe that. We don't believe that about Jesus Christ. We don't believe that he's the one and only Savior. So therefore, Jesus is pointing out here, if that's your mindset. If you're rejecting Christ, then you're rejecting me. If you don't love God, Christ, you don't love God. You despise him. And because they hate God, he's showing them here that, you know what, because you hate me, I'm God's son, you in turn hate God himself. And a lot of times that's what happens in our society today. People say, oh no, I believe in God. And, I, and then you bring up the topic of Jesus Christ and it's like they, they run as fast as they can. And they're just revealing their wicked heart. And so here, Jesus basically stripped them down. He distro- disrobed them of their facade, you might say, publicly. Now you can only imagine at this point, they weren't really happy about this. Okay? They were found out. He was making it very clear to those around them that these people had ulterior motives. It's all about power. It's all about money. Whatever it was, it wasn't about serving God. And up to this point, they've called him all kinds of names. They've called him a Sabbath breaker. They called him even satanic in verse 24. And they get to the point where they basically say, you know what, what you do, the work that you do, You don't do it by God's power. You do it by Satan's power. You're filled with Satan himself. Can you you imagine saying that about the Son of God who came to save the world? But he doesn't just take that on the cheek and, you know, he, he attacks back. He turns it right back on him. 
And they be, he begins to tell them, hey, well, wait a minute. I'm just, you know, I healed this guy. He was blind. He was mute. I healed him. I cast the demon out. And now you're saying that I do it by the power of, of Satan? Well, your own sons, your own disciples do the same thing on the surface that I'm doing. And you don't judge them. So he pointed out their bias. He pointed out their hypocrisy. And by the time they got to verse 24, they're calling him basically, they're saying that he's possessed by Satan himself. And so when it comes to verse 38, we find ourselves at a point where Jesus is finally, you know, he's been very patient. (laughs) He's been very gracious up to this point. Now it's kind of like the gloves come off and he basically is going to tell them what's going to happen. The judgment that is going to fall on them. And so they accuse him of being a Sabbath breaker, a Satanist, or being filled with Satan himself. And now look at what it says there in verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now remember, he had just kind of ripped them down. He gave an illustration, a parable about uh, you know, fruit, Growing on good trees, good trees bear good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit. And then in verse 34, he called them a brood of vipers, and he relates to them as, as vipers, as snakes. And, you know, he just kind of dressed them down. And they were probably taken back by that, and they probably stepped away to regroup a little bit, but they came right back at him. And it says not just the Pharisees, but some of the scribes and the Pharisees came back. So they brought some, maybe some cohorts that knew the law a little better, than them, the scribe was basically a lawyer in Jesus' day. They, they knew uh, the, the law backwards and forwards. And I see here this confrontation happening. And then we see the reply in verses 41 to 42. But here in verse 38, he says, they say, Master, some, some verses might say teacher or rabbi. And it's really, it, you say, wasn't that an endearing term? Well, it is if it's said in the right way. <laughs> you can say words in certain ways that mean certain things, but boy, you put a little inflection in your voice, and it means a whole different thing. And here they were coming off as pious. Um, they wanted to keep their reputation up in front of the people, so they didn't want to be disrespectful. But at the same time, they were kind of, you know, just saying this, oh, master, you know, kind of sarcastically, you might say. And they refer to him as master or teacher or rabbi. And that could be a great sign of respect, but in this case, it really wasn't. It really means someone who knew the law better than anybody. It was an authoritative figure. Those who know the law, they would call them master or rabbi or teacher but here it just drips with hypocrisy because they didn't respect him. They just got done telling that they think that he is empowered by Satan himself. <laughs> so they call him master. And they ask him in verse 38, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. Well, what does this mean? Because the implication here is, is pretty important. Um, because I think the people 
in Jesus' day would have perceived this whole situation a lot more different than what we perceive it just by reading it. Because, see, you have to understand, here are the Pharisees. They just got dressed down by Jesus. They stepped away. They brought back the scribes with them. And they come to Jesus in front of all these people, and they say, Master, we would like to see a sign. Well, in those days, the people still had respect for the Pharisees and the scribes. That was the religion that they were in. And so when they saw the Pharisees and the scribes asking Jesus for a sign, they weren't offended by that. They thought, well, there must be something in the law that requires the Messiah to do some kind of a sign. Because why would they ask that? That's how much respect they had, blind respect for these people. And so they asked him for a sign. And the people were just assuming, well, it must say somewhere in God's law that the Messiah has to be a sign. So they're just sitting back going, okay, we'll do something. What's wrong with that? They thought it was some kind of official question. Must be somewhere in the law that the Messiah has to be validated by doing this sign or something. So that's why they're asking. So let's see it. I mean, you wonder what kind of sign they were asking for, don't you? I mean, think of everything he's done up to this point. Healing after healing after healing. You see transformed lives all over the place. Basically, he rid the whole region of any kind of sickness at all. He cast out demons. He clearly showed everybody that he had power over the demonic world. He forgave sin. I mean, what more do they want? They've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of miracles up to this point. What else could they ask for? Look over at Matthew chapter 16, because it gives us a little insight here. Matthew chapter 16. There's a parallel situation going on here. Verse 1. Matthew 16, it says, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and what were they doing? They were testing him. They asked that he would show them a sign. This time they're a little more specific, aren't they? A sign from where? A sign from heaven. A sign from heaven. It's interesting, they didn't come just to see a sign. They weren't verifying anything in the law. They were testing him. They were poking and prodding, saying, how can we catch this guy? We have to bring him down. Maybe if we discredit him in front of all these people, they'll say, huh, see? And they'll leave, and we'll still remain in power. But they say they want to see a sign from heaven, so he talks about the heavens. He answered in verse 2, Matthew 16, and he said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. <laughs> you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then what's he do? Says he, what? He left them and he departed. Now go back to Matthew 12. You have to understand the Jewish mindset. 
the Jewish mindset, they were always looking for a sign. They were always looking for something, uh, a way of validating what someone was saying. And so he talks about the sky, and then he says in verse 4 back there, he says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says this, the Jews demand signs. <laughs> That's what the Apostle Paul says. They want proof. It was characteristic of them to expect certain signs and wonders to prove that a man was a messenger from God. That was just part of the deal. And you stop and think, that's why Jesus did so many signs. (laughs) That's why Jesus did so many miracles. That's why Jesus even passed that power on to the apostles and the early disciples so that they could do signs, wonders, and mighty deeds among the people so that they could at least meet the level of expectation of the Jewish people. They had this expectation, prove yourself to be extraordinary by doing extraordinary things. They wanted to see basically a bunch of hocus pocus. If someone said they were from God, they wanted some kind of a sign. But I think there's more to that, more to this than just that. They really wanted something, it says, from the heavens. So everything Jesus had done up to this point was just kind of healing people and things. They said, oh, no, okay, we know he can do that. We don't want to ask him to do that. We'll lose. Let's ask him to do something spectacular in the heavens. Well, what do they mean? Who knows? Have you ever been out on a nice, beautiful day and you see puffy white clouds? Sunny, but there's puffy white clouds up there. And you ever laid in the field and looked up and said, oh, look at that one. That looks like the face of whatever. This looks like... Sometimes you can do that. Maybe that's what they wanted. They wanted the clouds to rearrange themselves in Aramaic and say, this is the Messiah, my son. I don't know what they were looking for. I mean, they would have loved to see Joel's prophecy come into play here. Moon turn into blood. Black out the sun and that whole thing. They wanted a 4th of July fireworks in the sky. And then we'll believe. But the reason they asked him this question is because they believed he couldn't do it. They believed he couldn't do it. And they wanted to discredit him in front of the people. That was their whole intent. That's what they always were about. They were trying to discredit Christ on every turn. If he's the Messiah, then let him do this. Well, they've seen him do miraculous things, incredible things up to this point, so they couldn't just pick something that was just, okay, hey, there's a lame guy over there, go heal him. (laughs) So they said something in the heavens. And their whole intent is to embarrass him, to discredit him. See, they not only, and this is kind of a progression that we see with these religious leaders, they not only believe in, they don't believe in him, Okay, they not only blaspheme him and the Holy Spirit and say that the works that you do, we can't argue with those. Yeah, they're supernatural works, but you don't do it by God's power. You do it by Satan's power, pal. That's what they were saying. So their unbelief leads to sheer blasphemy. And then eventually, that's not bad enough. Now they're trying to discredit him. They're trying to humiliate him in public. You can see this progression Their hearts just get 
more wicked and more wicked and more wicked. They not only reject him, but now they want to have everyone else join in their rejection of the Messiah. And his reply in verse 39 is interesting. Matthew 12, 39. He says, but the answer to them is similar to what we just read in Matthew 16. An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. In other words, the only kind of people who are demanding what you're asking for show that they are evil, first of all, and you're adulterous. And the thought is, if you were really united to God the way you want people to think you are, because you wear these robes and you're a religious leader, and if you were really where you should be with God, and you were understanding of His covenant with you, if you had been faithful to God, you wouldn't ask for such a thing. That's his point. Because only an evil and an adulterous nation would ask for such a sign. He says you're an adulterous nation there. You've created a breach. You've, you've broken a covenant with God. And this has been their history over the years. They had a period of their history in which they were idolatrous. They were following other gods. Um, they were no longer idolatrous in a formal sense in, in, this, in this text, but their hearts were not following God. They abandoned him. Psalm 73, 27 says they had played the harlot, speaking of the nation of Israel. Isaiah in verses 50 and 57 uses all sorts of terms that deal with harlotry and adultery when it comes to their relationship with God. Same in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea. I mean, you can find it all over the place. They were adulterers and adulteresses who had made friendship with the world. And they had become at enmity with God. That's what James 4, verse 4 describes it as. So anyone, he says, who would demand such a sign from me, you must be evil and you must be adulterous in your relationship to God. Because you wouldn't seek such a sign otherwise. After everything I've done is the point. And he kind of is implying here, you don't know God or you wouldn't have to have a sign. And then he basically says in verse 39, and by the way, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You say, well, why didn't you just do something with the clouds or whatever? I mean, didn't he have the power to do that? Sure. I mean, he's the one that created it. He created everything around us. He could do whatever he wanted. But it's very important to understand that it wasn't because of his inability to do these things. I mean, he, he created all this. He could rearrange it however he wanted But he couldn't have done it from a moral standpoint. Because you have to understand, Christ is not in the business of bending to the whims of those who want no relationship with him. He's not in that kind of a business. 
You say, well, I thought God loves sinners. Well, sure. He wants every, everyone to come to him in repentance. And the way that you come to him is through his son, the Savior. But when you point to his son, the Savior, which is the only means whereby you'll be saved, and you say, you know what? He's satanic. I don't want to have anything to do with him. What he's pointing out is there's no hope for you. There's no back door to heaven. There's only one way. And that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. By repenting of your sin and putting your faith and trust in Him and Him alone. Not in a church, not in a prayer, not in a raise your hand meeting, not in any of those things. You get on your knees before God and you say, God, you know what? I know that I've sinned. I know that I've, I've transgressed your law and I need to repent of that. I need to turn away from that and turn to you and put my faith and trust in you. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. And God will save that person. Comes from a sincere heart. But these people were playing games. Their whole intent was just to discredit him. They weren't really interested in a sign. They could care less. He could have done whatever he wanted. They would have come up with another excuse not to believe. See, that's the whole problem today with the modern mentality when it comes to our evangelism. We think somehow if we dumb down the gospel to the very basics, you know, we don't want to use the word sin because that's kind of offensive, so we'll just call it a mistake. We don't want to talk about the blood of Christ because that's really out there offensive. So, you know, we'll just use up, you know, we won't use those terms because we want to appeal to those who are sinners. We want them to fill our churches so that they can hear us tell nice stories about what Jesus can do for us. And that's what's happening all around our nation and the world today. We're dumbing down the gospel to the point where you'd have to be a total moron to say no. And what's happening is people are, quote, coming to Christ, but they're not being converted. There's no transformation of life. And then we make excuses for them to live, continue to live in their sin. Well, you know, they're, they're, they're just new. They'll learn the ropes eventually. Look through the Bible, beloved. Whenever God saved someone, whenever God transformed someone, they were truly transformed. You don't have to wait 40 days for something to take place. So we need to stop and we need to remind ourselves that God is in the business of speaking truth to people's hearts. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Saying you evil and adulterous generation, you seek after a sign, and you know what? I'm not going to give you one because you've already had enough, especially through the prophet Jonah. He says, no sign will be giving, given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, this is kind of interesting. You all remember the story of Jonah, right? The prophet who basically in the Old Testament was told to go preach to the Ninevites and... Uh, because he didn't like the Ninevites, he said, no, I don't want to go. I'm not going to go. And he went in the opposite direction, got on a boat, and he went literally in the opposite direction from what God told him to do. And there was a tremendous storm, and he told the captain, you know what? The reason the storm is happening is because me, I'm the problem. Throw me overboard, 
And when you do, everything will be cool because I kind of ticked off God. <laughs> I didn't do what he told me to do. So they threw him overboard. And it says a great fish swallowed him up. And it says that he was in the fish three days. So you have this, diso- this, this disobedient prophet who was then thrown up on the shore by the fish. One commentator said, any prophet who's disobedient would make anybody sick. Even a fish. And the disobedient prophet ended up being vomited out of the fish onto the shore and he got the message. He went back to Nineveh. He preached. And it says the whole place repented. You can read that in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. They repented and it says in sackcloth and ashes and God spared his judgment for that time. And so Jesus says here, this generation will be given no sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And look at verse 40. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign. It's a prophecy. You have to understand, in the Bible, there's different kinds of prophecies. In the Old Testament, there's one kind of prophecy that's called verbally predictive prophecy, where a statement is made about something that's going to come to pass. A scepter shall come, a king will be on the scene. A greater son of David, a virgin shall conceive. All those are verbally specific prophecies. All those pointed to Christ. But there's also a second kind of prophecy. It's called typically predictive prophecy. There's not only verbally predictive prophecy, but there's typically predictive prophecy. And that's a type or a picture of something. Something in the Old Testament is a picture of something in the New Testament. And what Jesus is pointing out here is the story of Jonah, while it doesn't verbally predict anything about Christ per se... Typically, it predicts, predicts the most monumental thing about Christ, his resurrection. So throughout the Old Testament, you see these different kinds of pictures. And then all of a sudden in the New Testament, you say, wow, that's just like that. And it's, it's usually named as a type in the New Testament. You can't just go through the Old Testament and see something that kind of looks like something and make that a type. No, it has to pretty much state it. That's what most theologians believe to be true. So Jesus here says that the story of Jonah was a prophecy in as much as Isaiah 53 was a prophecy. It's a predictive prophecy given in picture rather than in word. And as Jonah, he says, spent three days and nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man spend three days and nights in the heart of the earth. When Jonah got eaten by that fish, It looked like it was the end of Jonah. You know what? It wasn't. Read the story. It looked like it was the end of Jesus when he was crucified on that cross. But you know what? It wasn't. Jonah was buried in the depths of the sea. Jesus was buried in the depths. Jonah came out. Jesus came out. 
See, it was a picture of his resurrection. It was three days for Jonah, and it was three days for Jesus. It was a perfect picture, right down to the day. Now, when we look at this verse 40, a couple things pop out in my mind. First of all, it's interesting that Jesus must have believed the story of Jonah. You've ever run into people, oh, I don't believe those fairy tales. Yeah, who could get eaten by a fish after three days? Well, there are actually, I mean, if you're that kind of a skeptic, you can actually do some research. There are actually people who were eaten by huge fish and they didn't come out, but they found their body. And a lot of what, what was said in the story of Jonah, that he was you know, discolored with white, they found these, these bodies and they, were, they looked just like that. So, you know, if you're a skeptic, you can go ahead and, and be a skeptic and, and say that was just a story and it was a fairy tale, but I don't think Jesus would give validity to a fairy tale. I think Jesus isn't going to lead us astray. And here, he actually uses the story of Jonah because he believed it to be true. So if Jesus liked this story, it validates the authenticity of what happened to Jonah. Another thing here is this term, great fish. We don't know what it was. We really don't. Sometimes this word can be used for a whale. It can be used of a seal. It can be used of a shark. Don't know what kind of fish it was. Slightest idea. You speculate all you want. We say whale because it makes, you know, good story for the Sunday school kids and all that, you know. And it could have been a whale. We don't know. And the other thing I see here is that it says that three days and three nights... When we get to this time of year, Easter and Resurrection Sunday and Good Friday and Passion Week, people, the question always comes up, well, how did Jesus spend three days and three nights in the grave? If he was crucified on Friday, how did he get out of that grave on Sunday morning? That's not, doesn't add up. And people always have that problem. Because they say if Jonah was three days and three nights, that's a 72-hour period. So Jesus has to be in the earth 72 hours. And if he rises on Sunday morning, that puts the crucifixion all the way back to the middle of the week, not on Friday. Well, you really don't have to do that. Once you understand a little bit about the culture of Judaism, the way they think in their 24-hour time periods and, and that kind of a thing. Because that phrase, a day and a night, simply was a phrase referring to a 24-hour period or any part of that 24-hour period. It was the only way that you could refer to a 24-hour period unless you used another really weird term that's uh, a phrase that's hardly ever used except in 2 Corinthians 11.25. So when you refer to a period, the normal way to refer to it would be as a day and a night. That's what they call a 24-hour period. And the Talmud says this, any part of one is as the whole. So if I said to you, I mean, to make this simple, yesterday, uh, spent the day in San Francisco. Do you know how long I spent in San Francisco? Are you going to come and tell, oh, you were in San Francisco for 24 hours? Just because I said I spent the day, and you think a day, 24 hours, you're not going to think that. I could have drove down San Francisco and turned around and drove back. With traffic, it may have taken me a day. Who knows? 
But the idea is the same thing. So we don't know exactly the hours that these individuals were in these predicaments, Jonah being in the well, Christ being in the grave. But in their mentality, three days was three days. It didn't have to be a literal 24-hour period of time. You could start Saturday afternoon, and that's, that's one day, and you, you get three days. It's very easy if you, if you go down and, and figure it out the way they think. But it's interesting that at this point, this is a picture of the resurrection. It's a picture of that sign. And so what he's saying is no sign will be given but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's it. He's saying after that, there's there's not going to be any more signs. That's the last sign, folks. And you know what? When you read through the Gospels, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you really don't see Jesus doing any miracles. Now, he does some pretty neat things with his glorified body. He just kind of pops in and that kind of thing. But, I mean, as far as miracles like he, he did before, we don't read of that. Christ himself doesn't do those. That was the last sign that he was going to perform, his resurrection from the grave. And it was clearly a sign from heaven because no one could raise the dead but God himself. Luke 16 says, when he said, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe the one who rises from the dead. And you know what? They didn't believe. Their hearts were hard. They were evil. So this is the last sign that he's going to do. And when you turn your back on that, when you turn your back on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as Messiah, there's nothing else for you. You can't run to some other religion and get saved. You can't go around. You can't circumvent Jesus Christ and go in the back way. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So we live on the side of the resurrection where everybody understands, basically, the concept of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have Easter, Resurrection Sunday every year. The world understands that. I mean, they're trying to change the meaning of it and everything as they do, but that's fine. It's still there, and we know why it's there. And so many people appear to be good and righteous and religious, and boy, Easter comes, oh, they'll go to church. But when it comes down to it, they reject Christ and they reject his resurrection because they reject him as Savior. They don't love God, they hate God. See, when you come to Christ, then everything comes off. The gloves come off. He sees you for who you are. And according to John 15, that's what plays out. So what you do with Christ is your way of determining where you will spend eternity. And then here in verse 41, he throws this in, and it's kind of interesting what he says in verse 41. He says, the men of Nineveh, who were pagans, basically, they were Gentile, they were idolaters, they had no law of God, they were outside the covenants and the promises, 
They were dark in their understanding and alienated from God. Into their midst comes this guy named Jonah. It's just kind of interesting that he brings up these men of Nineveh. Why is he doing this? Because he's trying to show them where their hearts truly are. How far over the edge they've truly fallen. I mean, you could see if Jonah was somebody, you know, a big deal. He goes on there in verse verse. 41, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Hello? He's speaking of himself. I mean, do you know what they said about Jonah? I mean, you think back about the story of the Ninevites. They were Gentiles. They were pagans. They were idolaters. And then Jonah himself, I mean, this is what he said about himself. This isn't even what somebody else said about him. He said, I'm sinful, I'm foolish, I'm rebellious. And he was a prophet of God. Jonah 1 and and 4 say that. That's not a great recommendation. So here is this people... The Ninevites with no advantages. They're sinful people. They're rebellious. They're foolish. They're disobedient. And and here comes this foolish, rebellious, disobedient man who was just vomited up by this giant fish because he was doing what God told him not to, or he wasn't doing what God told him to do. He's going the opposite direction. And his whole message, if you read the book of Jonah, is one of doom. He talks about doom. He talks about devastation, destruction, damnation. And he's talking to people with no advantages. They don't have any covenant with God, nothing. Like these religious leaders did. And you know what else? Jonah didn't do any miracles. He didn't say to the Ninevites, hey, look at this. God gave me the ability to do all this stuff. Now do you believe me? He didn't do that. He just came basically preaching hellfire and brimstone and told them to repent or else. And you know what happened? Jonah 3, 5. It says, So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. In other words, from the leaders all the way down the ranks to the common folk. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. A sign of mourning, a sign of repentance. That was the attitude, the oriental attitude of repentance. It says, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. What's he do? He proclaims a fast, not only for the people, beloved, but for the animals. This is how far deep down their repentance was. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, And he's putting sackcloth on the animals, for goodness sakes. And cry mightily to God. Yes, every one of them turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And that tells us that it was genuine. 
the repentance was genuine, at least for this generation. It didn't last very long. 150 years later, the whole city was destroyed. But the generation's repentance was true. It says, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So here you have this Gentile, pagan, adulterous people outside of the covenants of the law of God. And they have this crazy, half-baked, disobedient, foolish, rebellious, wicked prophet who came from them just because God made him. And he preached nothing but doom and gloom. He did no miracles whatsoever. And it says the whole place repented and believed God. And what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out here a contrast And he's saying in verse 41, you know what? There's a greater one here than Jonah. Hello. Look at what I've done in your midst. It's a different situation. These aren't Jews. Or these are Jews. They aren't Gentiles. The religious leaders. These are the people of God, of the covenant, of the promises, of the adoption. They were entrusted the law of God. And Jesus Christ, who is much greater than Jonah, came in person to them. and did incredible miracles in their midst. So our Lord says, in judgment, look at what he says, the people of Nineveh will rise up and condemn you. For with much less they believed and repented. That's how far gone these poor people were. That's why he says, you know what, when you get to the point where you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, when you get to the point when you're crediting the power of God to the power of Satan, there's really no hope. There's no hope for you. Because you're, you're basically spurning the only way of salvation God is offering through his son, the Messiah. And if you're not going to give him the credit and the, the honor that is due him and come to him as the Lord and Savior... You'll be lost in your sin forever. He's not even done there. He goes on from Jonah and he talks about the queen of the south in verse 42. We're not going to get into all this. But you have to understand, he says there in verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. You can read about that in 1 Kings 10. You can read all about the, the Queen of Sheba, Queen of the South. The land of the Sabaeans was a great distance from Israel. And apparently, this queen had heard of the wisdom. And she traveled a very long way to just get a hold of some wisdom from Solomon. And she's a Gentile, by the way, an Arab. A Gentile Arab. And, and she's, she's going to condemn the chosen people? I mean, at this point, the Pharisees' eyes were probably rolling back in their heads. They didn't know what to, how to respond to this. First of all, you have these Ninevites who were pagan people, Gentile people. They're going to judge us? That's what you're saying, Jesus? And then you'd say, not only them, but the queen of the south is going to judge us as well? And he wants them to understand, you know what? I provided a way. I provided a way of salvation for you. And it's right in front of you and you don't even see it. 
So there's, Jesus is greater than Jonah. He's also greater than Solomon, he says. Because that's how he ends there. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. And these prophets went out and, and these pagan people repented. But these religious leaders are still making themselves righteous in God's eyes. I mean, how do we apply this to our day today, to our society today, to our church today, to our lives today? You know, there are are people today who reject Jesus Christ, and they reject the resurrection of Christ, and they reject the wisdom of Christ. They may be sitting in a religion, sitting in a church, and someday pagan Ninevites and a pagan queen, by contrast, will condemn them in judgment. What it's saying is that those who are far off that believe prove that those who are near are responsible to believe. Now you can be under the hearing of the gospel week in and week out, beloved. Don't turn that off. Don't turn your back on that. Don't allow your heart to grow so hard and so cold that Jesus Christ could come down from heaven himself and plant himself right here behind this pulpit and do incredible signs and you would still sit there with your skepticism and your unbelief. We live in the age of grace. God has extended his grace to us with each breath that we breathe. If you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, I pray with all of my heart that you'll consider these words. That you will consider the words of the Savior. He loves you. He died for you. Died for your sin. And he desires you to come to him in repentance and in faith. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, as we read about these Pharisees, it's hard to believe that with everything that they've seen, with all the miraculous signs, with, with the incredible exorcisms that took place and the healings, everything that Christ did, the, even the words he spoke, they said that he spoke as no other man. And the deeds that he had done were never seen before because there were so many of them. It was amazing. And Lord, we may be here today and we may be looking around this room seeing how Jesus Christ has changed the hearts and lives of people around us. And we hear testimony that you are real, that you can come into a person's life and change them, transform them, give them new desires, free them from the burden of sin that they carry around. Lord, I pray that our hearts would not grow cold. That we would not turn our back on you yet another day. Lord, that you would, with your spirit, with your word, with those who know you, 
that unbelievers would be wooed to you. That they would understand their need of a Savior. That they would put their faith, their trust in you and repent of their sin. And for believers, Lord, I pray that we would take heart in the fact that you did change our life. And Lord, you didn't change us just to stay the same every day, but you changed us so that we would grow closer and more like you each day. That we would be able to take the message of this grace-filled, just loving message of forgiveness to those who have yet to hear. I pray that we would live up to your expectation in that way. Father, I pray you'd bless us as we are dismissed today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.